bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the July 12th, 2022 podcast. 28 months ago tomorrow, on March 13th, 2020, then-President Donald Trump declared a national emergency concerning the COVID-19 pandemic, and within a week, national lockdowns and restrictions were implemented. Over the two-plus years since that declaration, more than 87 million Americans have tested positive for COVID-19, and more than 1 million have died. All aspects of American life have been affected by the COVID pandemic, including an area that's a focus of this podcast, affordable rental housing. At the outset of the pandemic, owners and operators of low-government attachment properties were concerned about keeping their tenants safe, but also about how rent collections would be affected as many workers were forced to stay home. There were many unprecedented variables affecting housing credit properties and their tenants, including eviction bans and varying sources of government financial aid. Over the past two years, many of those questions were answered with respect to government financial aid, which included rental assistance. We also now have enough data and anecdotal information to better understand what happened during the height of the pandemic and how that should inform affordable housing stakeholders going forward. To gain a deeper understanding of what happened and assess where we are and what's next, Novogratik has published a special report on low-income housing tax credit properties and the COVID-19 pandemic. The report is entitled Resilience and Responsiveness, How LIHTC Properties Weathered the COVID-19 Pandemic and What to Expect in the Future. Blair Kenser, my partner in Novogratz, Washington, D.C. office, is the lead author of the report, and he joins us today. Blair is a leader of the company's Government Consulting Evaluation Advisory Service Group, or GOVAL. Blair specializes in market analysis and appraisal in a variety of tax incentives. He's also the author of our annual affordable housing operating expenses report and has been a guest multiple times to discuss that report as well as other data-centric issues. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to check out an episode we aired a few months ago on March 8th. Blair and I discussed how the pandemic has affected the analysis of low-commensic tax credit rental markets. I'll share a link to that episode in today's show notes. Now, in today's podcast, we'll discuss the special report. Blair will share some of the high-level conclusions from the report, then we'll drill down to discuss the insights that affordable housing operators and underwriters should take away from the two-plus years of operation during a pandemic. I think you'll find some of the details surprising, and other information may confirm what you already believe. Regardless, this is important information that any stakeholder in an affordable housing property should know, and we're looking forward to digging in. There's a lot to talk about today, so if you're ready, let's get started. Blair, welcome back to Task Route Tuesday. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here. And happy to have you here. So I'd like to start with a high-level view of this report, which was published today. Please share what is in the report and why this report is must-reading for housing tax credit owners and investors. Sure, Mike. I think we... What we wanted to accomplish was create a document, a compendium, if you will, that kind of talks about 
not only the history, the historic impacts, the effects of the actual COVID, but what might be lasting effects, what we might be able to look forward to in the coming months and years. We have chapters on occupancy, income limits, rent, operating expenses, changing demographics. It's a source of the combination of data from both Novogratic and interviews with lung housing tax credit stakeholders. We're hoping that the chapters give us insight into to what happened, but also what's coming and how stakeholders could take that information and modify their understanding and behavior. So we're going to get into some of the key takeaways later in the podcast, but I thought it'd be useful if you started by sharing with our listeners some of the big picture themes in the report. So what are some of the biggest storylines that are covered in the report? Sure. The uh, three biggest, I would guess, or I believe, are first occupancy. It stayed high, more than 98%, despite the fact that many tenants were at least temporarily out of work. Also, disruptions in releasing units that might be vacant. Rent uh, remained relatively stable. Rent receipts, uh, while definitely impacted, were surprisingly solid. Obviously, stimulus payments had a significant impact on that, but we'll talk a little bit more about that as we discuss the topic. Finally, uh, demographic changes. Personally, I'm still shocked about the labor participation rate and where we are today with that, but it dropped dramatically. Obviously, unemployment went up and then returned to relatively normal. We also had the smallest population gain in a nation's history. I think that is it's something that is going to be a discussion point going forward as we're trying to figure out the demographic change. So you noted the high occupancy rate and beyond just occupancy, the surprisingly high rent receipts. Now I emphasize surprisingly high <laughs> because at the start of the pandemic, there were significant concerns about rental collections. In fact, Todd Crow, an executive vice president at PNC Real Estate and I co-wrote an article as expressing these concerns. In the article, we said that rent receipts would drop. And then we then went on to wonder how far and how long they would drop, that that was the real question. And in the article, we had noted several factors that would affect the depth and the length of the decrease in rent receipts. So it, based on the report, rent receipts didn't drop as far as certainly many feared. Uh, what are some of those factors that the report identified that limited that depth and possibly the length of the decline in rent receipts? I think the report, I think you're, 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 you and Todd were spot on on the concerns. And I think that I heard that echoed by many, and we reflected that in the report. Many st stated that their concern was fundamentally based on looking at the jobs that many of their tenants held, retail, restaurants, hospitality, and tour and travel. One of our respondents also mentioned that the thing that they kind of didn't un anticipate was the fact that many of these tenants also worked in healthcare and worked in grocery stores and in transportation. So it became more of a mixed bag. And I think that is one thing that, that was a little bit of a surprise to some property managers on the micro level. I think also at first, early in 2020, it was unclear how the government, state, local, and federal were going to react. I think obviously it ended up being a confluence of robustness, of robust action, including eviction moratoriums and that effect 
directly affect operations, but you know, this again, the significant. Finally, I think the other thing that was a mitigating factor and one that I know the industry is very proud of is the performance of property managers, both in being uh, flexible in their job, but also helping tenants access some of this less and helping them to remain in place during COVID. I think those are the big mitigating factors in my mind. And when you think of these factors, we then can maybe be a little more granular and think about the different types of properties and the effect of the pandemic on categories of properties based upon tenant types. So you have senior properties and you have family properties and you have properties with section eight tenants, any insights in terms of the performance of those different categories of properties? Sure. And it's something that I've always been very interested in is because when we talk to property managers, one of my favorite topics is if you ever find, and often you do find property managers who have managed both senior and family properties and who have managed a mixed income as well as a strictly rent subsidized versus strictly tax credit. And I've always uh, enjoyed the conversations with someone who manages a senior property versus someone who has previous experience with a family. And I think that key, that those old conversations came back full throttle in this because a lot of the challenges that seniors face normally were exa exaggerated. The fact that they tend to be isolated from family and support networks, that increased dramatically. The fact that sometimes they're not as, as, as quick to adopt new technologies, that became a, a significant issue for property managers to, to address. Family properties, stay-at-home orders with kids, trying to do distance learning, trying to find a way to get the Wi-Fi to allow that, trying to get properties to, re to respond in those situations. I think that finally, the, to address the mixed income, the different types of subsidy, I think very nimble thinking had to happen because you do have different collection issues with a straight tax credit property or a mixed income property versus a, a, a rent subsidized property. And I think we saw some of that flexibility during the pandemic. And I think we've learned a lot from that. And I think there was also an expectation sort of heading into the pandemic that say a senior property where your residents were on social security or other fixed incomes that weren't employment related would do better in terms of red collections because of the ability to pay and properties with section eight revenue would receive at least the section eight portion of the revenue and that that would be a little bit more predictable. And then the properties that were family or otherwise more variant variable in terms of the tenant population would face greater challenges on rent collections. Does the report reveal that? We discussed that, yes, it's, it's a little bit more of a mixed report because you're right, senior properties tend to have that fundamental baseline of social security as a backstop for residents. One of the things that became apparent to me through conversations was even with that though, a surprising number of seniors do rely on family income. And I think that was a little bit of a challenge for some property managers. I always appreciated that that was true. I mean, we hear that in interviews. I didn't realize in some markets how prevalent that was. So I think that clouded some of the data. Right. Thank you for that. So you mentioned the importance of the federal and local stimulus payments and the federal and local eviction bans. Now that we've had this sort of 
precedent for federal local stimulus payments and rental protections. And when I say stimulus payments, I mean both the broader stimulus payments as well as the follow-on uh, rental assistance. So there was a variety of federal and local support. But when you look at the federal local support and renter protections that were put in place during this health crisis, uh, how do you think this will affect the government's response if a similar crisis were to occur in the future? And I, obviously I'm guessing on this, but, and, or maybe I'm estimating, let's say it that way. <laughs> you're hypothesizing. Yeah, you, 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 you don't see the future. <laughs> I try. I, I never. But I think that it is a template for a federal response or state response or governmental response in general to a similar occurrence. Hopefully not, but I think it is a template that we use. One of the things that I found interesting early on is some of the tools that we used in the Great Recession in that recovery were immediately accessed. And it, to me, that said, oh, look, we took an old tool, we used it again. How about that? I think that is one of the reasons I'm guessing, predicting, hypothesizing that the market w will expect a, a similar reaction going forward. As evidence, I look at capitalization rates for apartment properties, and they've been either stable or continuing to decline. And and they are certainly a discount to most other real estate sectors. Now, let's be careful with my point here that this is extremely, a, it is a multivariable equation and there's a lot going on, but I still feel that I can lean back on the fact that the, that this is evidence that investors are not shocked negatively because there hasn't been that dramatic of a, a upswing and they still show that discount to other real estate sectors, which a couple of them have been in, in, negatively impacted. So I see that as, okay, the market is recognizing that this sector is maybe not that unstable. And I think it might be partly responsible or partly a result of this government action. And I think it is baked in. Right. So I think what you're saying there is that the, over a longer term basis, the comparative capitalization rates at different classes of property that the rental, affordable rental housing or just rental housing in general, maybe affordable rental housing more specifically is now favored among investors. And you might see a more enduring effect on the capitalization rates of affordable rental property as compared to other assets. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Okay. So let's get to something that I'm sure listeners have been waiting to hear. And that is takeaways from the report. It, the report obviously documents a lot of what happened and history is always sort of important, but it's also what can we learn from it? So let's start with operators of properties. So here, I mean, developers, property managers, and others, if I'm in that group, what lessons from the pandemic should I take with me going forward in terms of affecting my behavior going forward, either continuing to do something I didn't do before the pandemic and now I should keep doing or what the pandemic taught me I should do in the future? Sure. I think there's three huge takeaways. I think the first is flexibility and engaging with tenants. I think we learned, or the property managers more specifically learned, more efficient ways to process and collect rent. They learned ways to actually assist tenants who might need additional help in, in, in getting 
access to subsidy or getting access to rental assistance. And we talked a little bit about that with seniors in particular. I think also leasing units that are vacant became a focus of technological change and flexibility, figuring out how to do that virtually, how to even sign a lease virtually. I think those things, that flexibility, that engagement with tenants is a big takeaway in my mind. I think uh, the second point I would make is the aggressive adoption of technology. And we'll discuss this a little bit later because I think that is a big focus of many property managers or asset managers. There's been some real focus on getting Wi-Fi into properties, but also property managers, again, adopting technology. I think the final point is more of a, a look forward because of operating expenses. I think that concept and and I think you layer on top of this, the inflation that we are currently recently and currently experiencing. It's a bit unsettled. And I think that's going to rear its head in budgeting. There is no doubt some maintenance backlogs. I, I when I walk with, I, I, sometimes I get the opportunity to walk with the maintenance guys or men and women, and sometimes it's a property manager. When it's the maintenance, it's kind of a, a different look. They don't ever think of, oh, we never didn't have a backlog. <laughs> and so you mentioned, oh, there's going to be a backlog. And they look at you like you're crazy because like, no, I've always had too much to do. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. I don't want to put too much import on that issue, but there's clearly going to be a maintenance backlog. I think we talked about this, the receipts, the rental receipts, delinquencies are a major concern. I think we're watching as the eviction uh, definitely created a backlog. There's no way around that. I think if you're currently analyzing a property in a tenant-friendly environment, that's a long process and it's an expensive process. And sometimes those costs cannot be recouped at all. And I think this, I'm hearing from investors, I'm hearing from lenders and developers that they're getting a lot of focus of, okay, here's, if it, particularly if it's an act rehab, here's the current delinquency. Why is that going to go down? What is the future of delinquency? I think that's a big uh, focus going forward. Finally, I, I think payroll is inflation has affected payroll, but also the fact that we have become efficient. So it's two factors affecting pay, payroll. We are seeing payrolls with significant increase increases in individual pay rates. However, with the efficiencies, there's a, a two factor equation there. I had one property manager explain to me that they expect to, to see wage rates go up 10% or more, and then explain to me, however, we had some efficiencies. And so when you layer in the efficiencies, it's actually going to be around a 3% increase. And so I get worried that, oh my gosh, he just said 10% payroll increase. Is that significant? And then the other part of the equation comes in. So going back to the re repairs and maintenance, how the concern over the backlog, I also want to weave in some other information into that and not get myself too, too worked up. So you mentioned engagement with tenants. And do you have a sense as to how widespread it was for property managers and owners to be actively engaged in helping tenants get various forms of rental assistance? I think it was widespread. I think it was also one of those things that wasn't widespread at first. <laughs> and as the delinquencies maybe stacked up or as they saw problems, uh, I think that definitely became more widespread. I don't think it's universal. I, I hear some of my property, some of my visits, the property manager is still trying to figure out some of these issues. But I think for one thing, I'll, I'll be fair, we, we spoke recently at NCSHA and Bud Clark was saying that this is something that we're lauding as an industry, that we were able to, as an industry, able to help these tenants stay in place and stay in place safely. So I think that 
we are telling ourselves that this was important. And I think that it's fair and to congratulate ourselves. I think it's definitely a, a, the feel good story of part of our report, but I do think that it's not universal. And I think it's, it, it bears repeating that this level of engagement is, was beneficial and it might be something to learn from going forward. Great. Thank you for that. Let's switch now to the effect of the pandemic on underwriting housing tech tax credit properties in the future. This is certainly something investors, syndicators, lenders, state housing agencies, and many others are thinking about. So what do you think they should take away? Or as we look at underwriting properties in the future, that we should take from this report when we look at future investments in loans? Someone who does market studies, I, I always react, uh, pull away from large, broad c comments about markets, but I'm all in on demand, almost universal. It was extreme prior to the pandemic. It certainly continues to grow in 2022. Obviously a slight downturn in additions during the pandemic only exacerbated that, but it's very obvious to me the refrain that we have affordable housing crisis while true prior to the pandemic is still true. It was true during the pandemic. So demand is almost universal. I think in terms of, when I think of in terms of demand, I think about that occupancy stability and predictability. I think that that level of demand creates that that level of expectation that occupancy can be stable and predictable. I think we saw that. Now, in terms of rent, the, the thing that I want to slow down a little bit on, on the optimism is you know, the experience in many unrestricted housing markets and other real estate uh, sectors the, was negative. We know that. I don't think that we saw that much of a negative impact in terms of asking rent and somewhat collected rent, but asking rent and most of the markets that we look at. I think most of our measures show that tax credit properties, affordable properties, were able to either keep stability in that rent or even some minor growth. So of course, rent and occupancy performance was aided by subsidy. There's no arguing that. But I think there is a, what I've heard from some stakeholders, a clear realization of how important homes are to tenants and how important and how that reflects itself in the ability, the willingness, the challenge of paying rent, but also staying in place. However, going forward, I'm a little bit more cautious about projecting significant rent growth. Clearly 2022 AMI and the, the calculation formula is a little bit removed from the direct effects of the pandemic. So we had this large increase in max rents. I think that we have to recognize that going forward, there's some data problems with the census that they've recognized it. They've attacked the issue. I think we've also have to understand we have this brief recession and, and I think that we will see impacts 2023 and beyond that I'm not willing to be extremely optimistic about. And so I'm pulling back on that optimism in terms of, of aggressive rent increase expectations. We may not be getting maximum rent as often as we once were. I do think now I want to go back to my market mantra of everything's local, that some markets are not going to be able to achieve max rents as they were maybe in the past. Finally, I think demographics have changed. I mentioned labor participation rates. That I think is important, but also changes in employment. We see McDonald's is constantly trying to hire people. I also realize that when I do field work, I go into McDonald's and get my Egg McMuffin and coffee. Oftentimes I'm entering it in on a computer screen and, and picking it up and the person behind a counter simply says, hello. I think that that issue is yet to be solidified. I mean, we've always talked about automation and how that's changing the face of employment. I think it's certainly something to consider in this situation as well. Oh, thank you for all of that. There's a lot to sort of unpack there. <laughs> And uh, let me just note to our listeners, you did mention that 
2020 census data problems. And as you know, Thomas Stagg, partner of ours, is working pretty aggressively on trying to come up with the rec potential recommendations to HUD as how to deal with that gap for the income limits for next year. And to that end, formed an income limits working group. So listeners that are interested in that issue, please reach out to Thomas Stagg or just email cpas at nebuco.com because that is something that will affect every low-income housing tax credit property that is in operation as well as all properties under development. So it's a pretty significant issue and something that we're very focused on at Novogratic, thanks to Thomas Stagg's leadership and yours, Blair, as well, and our valuation groups. So we've talked about an overview of the special report and what operators and underwriters should learn from the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as some we've talked about both operators and underwriters. Anything else that you think listeners should know from the report? I'm going to uh, double down on the technological issue. Sometimes I've been called it a Luddite. Sometimes I'm, a, I, I'm referred to as a slow adopter of technology. So that's one of the things that I've really been remarking on a lot to my clients and we've been discussing. And we've already talked about the contactless leasing, the rent payment and such. But I think also the addition of Wi-Fi is becoming very focused on by many people if properties don't have Wi-Fi. And this is both for rent subsidized properties and tax credit properties. A contributor to the report, Shannon Tudor, talks about adding Wi-Fi to a senior property and how important that was for them to maintain connectivity to family and healthcare providers. I think that was something that I found uh, really, A, very interesting, and B, in, uh, again, I think that the adoption of technology, the agile adoption of technology, I found very impressive. I think that the, in general, Alan Feliz, another contributor to the report, stated that his quote was, big events come to you and you sometimes you expect the worst. And then he takes that point and he says that between the federal response, the state response, the eviction moratorium, and also local owner operators keeping residents safe and keeping things going, it's like, he says, I'm amazed. He said, this actually worked out and he's a, a very positive statement. So I think that we have, I don't want to hurt our arms by patting ourselves on the back, but I think that is, this is a, a, a nice message for the program that, that, yeah, did we have help along the way? Of course we did, but it's a nice story to tell. Now, those are all very good points. And I do think the fear did help. The fear of what could have happened helped motivate efforts to keep them from happening, which I do think obviously some of the greater fears, fortunately were not realized, but it is helpful to be cautious. Always. So, so I will share the links to both of the uh, previous podcasts that we advanced in the course of this podcast. We'll share links to those in today's show notes. We'll also share a link in the show notes to the report itself, of course. And let me just emphasize this report is going to be a great resource for us for, for an indefinite amount of time to understand what happened, but more importantly, to help inform decisions going forward. So Blair, please do stick around for our off mic section where I get to ask you some off topic words of wisdom or get some off topic words of wisdom from you. Uh, on things that aren't directly related to affordable housing. To our listeners, please be sure to tune in next week. My guest is going to be my partner, Tom Bosha, from our Cleveland, Ohio office. Tom will be here to discuss the process that developers of historic properties have to engage in to raise investor equity from historic tax credits. In particular, 
Tom's going to review the key steps in obtaining, evaluating, negotiate, negotiating an investor term sheet. The term sheet is a critical part of raising equity from a tax credit investor. Tom will discuss the importance of not simply looking at the equity price per tax credit dollar. Tom and I will discuss both financial and non-financial considerations of term sheets, as well as how to take a closer look at provisions that you might not know are negotiable. If you work with the historic tax credit, this will be a must listen to episode. The episode will also be useful if you work with other tax credits, as many of the issues and considerations we discuss regarding historic tax credit term sheets overlap with other term sheets for other types of tax credit equity financing. You can make sure that you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following and subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and Radio Public. So now I'm pleased to reach our off mic section where listeners can get some off-topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So Blair, I did say this would be off topic, but this one is actually a little bit on topic. This podcast has been about the pandemic. So the pandemic has also changed a lot of how we do our jobs. So I was wondering what the biggest change for the better has happened to you professionally because of the pandemic. I think it's a two phase answer I'll, I'll give you on this. The first part of it is that I think I have a greater appreciation for the need and the benefits of having a flexible work environment, having people that are allowing or not allowing, but encouraging people to do what's best for them in terms of where, when and where they work. I never was a clock watcher and I never really saw the need for that silly FaceTime thing. But I think I've definitely learned that it's, you, people can be very productive while not sitting at a desk in an office. And I think the second part of that is, however, you have to also be very disciplined that you get away from work. In other words, it's now that work can permeate everything that you still need that time away. I know that I've struggled with that personally, but I have really tried to respect people's distance when they need that time away. So I think it's a little bit of a twofold answer, allowing ourselves to be physically flexible and where people work, but also making sure they, they understand that they need their time away, regardless of where that might be. I like that. So on a, a little bit more traditional question that I'll ask at this part of the pod, uh, if you could go back in time and give the 25-year-old Blair Kinser some professional advice, what advice would you give yourself? It's funny. I tried to answer this question when I thought about it originally is about professional advice. And I can't split it from personal advice because I see us as leaders, we're entwined. That's entwined with the people who, who we are as a person. And so I started thinking about, so what would I tell my 25 year old self in, in general? And I realized that I would probably tell myself, just relax, be yourself. It's all going to be okay. And then I realized that's exactly what my dad said to me. <laughs> and I didn't listen to him. So I probably wouldn't li listen to me either. And I realized that's what I'm telling. I realized that's what I'm telling my, I think I was a little too wound up and maybe still am a little in some ways, but I also would say I'd steal something from my wife who's an athlete. And, she tells her kids and their adults that she coaches that you keep your thoughts on you. You only control you. So you work every day to make yourself better. You are your competition. How the person runs beside you is not within your control. What's in your control is how you, how you train every day. So I would try to give myself those messages of, you know what, just 
relax. It's going to be okay. Focus on yourself. And then I'd probably get ignored. <laughs> <laughs> you ignore yourself. <laughs> I like the, I like that advice. I like the advice that your wife shared because in raising our kids, we've always emphasized their focus on their own individual effort. And that's all that you really can control is your individual effort. You can't uh, control all the outcomes of that effort, <laughs> uh, but you can control, uh, the level of, uh, effort that you put forth. Um, and we've always tried to raise them and praise them based upon their level of effort, as opposed to the outcome, which is, which can be challenging, <laughs> right? To not have it be an outcome based metric, but there's so much of outcome that is beyond your control. That, that it's not uh, healthy to be focused entirely on the outcomes, obviously the outcomes might, might redirect your efforts. <laughs> There's certainly a, some level of causation. It's more than just correlation, but it's certainly not, not clear that you'll get a certain outcome with a certain level of effort. Well, thank you again, Blair, for joining us and to our listeners. I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.